You guys hear me okay? Uh, I can hear me okay. Um, you know, I think Matt's prayer and his topic was really um, a well-chosen one. I, it took me back to about four years ago when we first did the Artesia Street Fair. And I want to relay with you just two brief stories. Um, I had forgotten about them until he mentioned them right now. But um, uh, the Artesia Street Fair takes place in an area called Little India, which is, as you guys know, in, in the Artesia area, just walking distance from our Cerritos location. And uh, there was an international festival uh, about four years ago, and I just kind of couldn't find anyone to go with me. So I went just to kind of go walk around and, and pray. This is before the Artesia Street Fair, maybe the day before or so. And um, I remember coming across this one um, demonstration of a person doing fortune telling. And uh, they, they were saying how um, you, think, you think of a thought, and I'm going to read your mind, I'm going to read your thought, and I'm going to um, you know, use my, my chakras and my enlightenment, uh, the third eye in me, you know, oneness to kind of see what's on your mind. And I was watching this happen, and this person was like, you know, doing it with the people. Now you think, okay, this is phony, these are fake, you know, these are setups and stuff. And so I just felt moved to say something um, when there was a break in between people. I just went up to the guy and I said, you know, um, what is happening here? Um, you may think that you're trying to help people, but the Bible says that um, you're actually spreading darkness. Because Jesus Christ, uh, it says, uh, Paul said in Ephesians chapter 5, that let no one deceive you with empty words, for the wrath of God comes upon you. I, I was saying this to this guy. Um, and that we are not to take part in darkness, but we are to expose it with the light. And so we started getting into a dialogue. I was quoting scriptures, and the crowd just started to disperse there while we were doing that. And then um, someone else, another yogi came forward. And, um, you know, I just said, let, let me just pray for you. Can I pray for you? So they allowed me to do that, right? But... Um, what happened was, in my presence there, the crowd started to disperse once I started to open my mouth and quote scripture and pray. And never underestimate the sanctifying influence you can be as the light, as the salt in that moment. You may not see the conversion of a yogi in front of you, but the simple fact that you're praying, the simple fact that you're bringing the word of God into light and exposing the darkness with the light can start to have a reverberating effect on the people around that are being caught into the lie. And so, um, and, and there was a second instance, uh, I think it was the same year when we were out there at the street fair, this first year, and those of you that were there, you remember this, um, Garen was there, Ted was there, I, there was a bunch of people there at this particular point in night, it was like at 10 at night or so, and, um, you know, there was, I don't know, maybe about 100 booths out there, and uh, for some reason, the lights around our booth went out and there's lights all around there's our booth and the booth next to us and we're looking down the street there's all these lights on all these lights on but it was just our booths and so you know we we're here saying okay is it the plug or whatever but we couldn't figure it out and so this went on for about 15 minutes and so everyone you know no one was coming by our booth anymore because all the lights were out and so uh a few of just of us just came together and we said you know we we think this is spiritual warfare we're right in the middle of little india we're sharing about our church and so let's just come together and let's just start praying. And we started praying. It must have been about two minutes. And as soon as we said the word, amen, the lights went back on. And then people started coming back to our booth. And so, um, you know, 
you're walking into, our church is walking into a very dark place at the Artesia Street Fair. It's one thing to be in a, a, in a kind of neutral space, but when you're in a place like the heart of Little India, where there are multiple Hindu temples just down the street in the city of Norwalk and so forth, um, we should pray and we should be out there. Because I remember another uh, couple came up to us and uh, they were Indian and they were said, oh yeah, we've been looking for a church. They never came, but you know, you never know who the Lord could be drawing at any moment. And so I really want to encourage you to be out there um, for the fair and talk to uh, Cynthia or Garen, the others uh, who are organizing it. We're in a series called Life, continuing on in First, Second, and Third John, which we will be in for quite some time. Uh, this series, Life, is very important because uh, all of us are thinking a lot about our lives. We're thinking about how to stay alive through health issues. We're thinking about how to live healthy lives through what we eat and how we exercise. We're thinking about how to live a fulfilled life. You know, who am I going to marry? What's my career going to be? We're thinking about how can I feel more alive? I'm dead. I'm depressed. I'm anxious. Um, and we're thinking a lot about our lives. The Bible says that though you are physically alive, though you're seeking uh, experiences to feel alive, that spiritually, in your natural state, in my natural state, before coming to faith, we are not spiritually alive. Even though we are physically alive, wanting to be emotionally alive, we're not spiritually alive in our natural state. We're actually spiritually dead. And that is why human beings seek to worship idols to find life in their dead spirit. That is why human beings seek to worship false gods to find life amidst their dead spirits. That is why we seek sinful experiences to feel alive because our spirits are dead. The gospel of Jesus Christ comes to us in our natural state where we're spiritually dead and brings us spiritual life. God brings us spiritual life through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit coming to life inside of us through our profession of faith. And so the question we want to be asking during this series of life is an ongoing question that should be in the back of your mind every single week, which is this. How do we know, for those of us who profess to follow Jesus Christ, how do we know that the eternal life of Jesus Christ does indeed live within us? If you are a professing follower of Jesus Christ, how can you know what signs, what tests, what principles, what assurances do you have and I have that our profession of faith in Jesus is indeed real, that it has in fact brought us the life of Jesus Christ into our lives. And so by way of review, um, we're going to be looking at a passage in First uh, John chapter 2, verse 12 through 14. But as you turn there, First John chapter 2, verse 12 through 14, which is our next passage in this, uh, going through First John. By way of review, uh, what has John been talking about in chapter 1? And the first part of chapter 2, over the past three weeks, as you turn to the passage, um, John has been reminding us of tests, principles, uh, signs, and assurances of how we can know Jesus lives inside of us. And there's really been three main um, indicators that we are to be looking at to see if that life is indeed in us. Um, The first that he's been talking about is, do we find ourselves 
confessing that we believe that we need the atoning work of Jesus on the cross for our sins? Do we believe that we need the atoning death of Jesus Christ on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, number one? We live in a society right now where people don't call sin, sin. They call it areas of growth. I have areas of growth, pastor. I have flaws in my life. I have shortcomings. I have brokenness. I have dysfunction. We have all these psychological terms for sin, and we don't call it sin. Because the minute you call yourself a sinner, the minute you call, you name that you have sin means that there is someone that you are acknowledging that is judging you, calling it sin. And you're also uh, on the way to acknowledging that you need atonement for that sin. When you just say it's growth, areas, flaws, shortcomings, brokenness, dysfunction, that doesn't necessarily need an atoning savior for that. It just maybe needs a good counselor. The good psychologist. And so John has been reminding us thus far is that do we see the atoning work of Jesus Christ as necessary to atone for our sins? Number one. Number two, by way of review, he's been reminding us that another sign that we have the eternal life of Jesus Christ inside of us is do we seek to obey the commands of Jesus? Are we generally seeking to obey the commands of Jesus in our life? Um, no one's perfect, but is there a general pattern of that? We live in a time and a society today that doesn't believe in centralized spiritual authority or just centralized authority over our lives. Uh, the new definition of salvation in our society is breaking free from centralized authority over your life. The cryptocurrency conversation in our culture is breaking free from the centralized authority of modern day finance. The homeschooling movement is breaking free from the centralized authority of public education. Social media is breaking free from the centralized authority of mass media. The work from home movement is breaking free from the centralized authority of the nine to five routine. And so we live in a society that's wanting to break free from centralized authority in our life, away from command and control top down the tyranny of that in our world to democratize choice in the hands of the individual. And it is amidst that culture of decentralizing from authority and decentralizing from spiritual authority that the church, the true church, you and I, we say no. We will listen. We will obey the commands of Jesus this centralized authority in our life amidst a world that rejects centralized authority. And so, uh, do we find ourselves wanting to obey the commands of Jesus' centralized authority, as well as the other apostles and the writers of the scriptures? And third and finally, by way of review, a third way that we can tell that John has been pointing out that the eternal life of Jesus Christ is in us is, do we find ourselves wanting to have fellowship with God, Jesus, and the church? Do we find ourselves being drawn to fellowship with God, Jesus, and the church? We live in a time, we talk about this uh, frequently, where uh, al- almost the majority of millennials and Gen Z, and one out of every three people 
across all five generations in America that exist today, from the builder generation to Gen Z, uh, would describe their spirituality as, I'm spiritual and good, I'm just not what? Religious. Um, I don't need to have fellowship with the church. I can do my spirituality on my own. I can do my goodness on my own. I don't need to have to fellowship with the God of the Bible or Jesus. I can do my goodness on my own and spirituality. And so amidst that, a true follower of Jesus Christ says, no, my fellowship is with God. My fellowship is with Jesus. My fellowship is with the body of Christ. And so today in our series, Life, as we continue to um, explore this question of how do we know that we have the eternal life of Jesus Christ in us, we're going to look at uh, three verses that actually talk about the outcome, the outcome of the eternal life of Jesus Christ in you in terms of spiritual maturity. We're going to look at three stages of spiritual maturity that uh, should be happening in a progression in your life when Jesus Christ comes to live inside of your life. Three stages of spiritual maturity. We live in an immature society. And we live in an, with uh, an immature church today, here in the 21st century. It's immature around us, outside the church, and uh, if we're honest, much of the church is spiritually immature. You can look at men today, and men are not mature. Men do not act like men, the way God wants men to act. Men don't act like men. Men act like boys in their extended adolescence, going into their late 20s and 30s, and some people into their 40s. Men don't act like men, they act like boys. Men don't act like men, they act like women. Uh, How they refer to themselves, how they dress, how they act. Men don't act like men, they act like animals. Uh, brutal animals consuming other people around them with no sense of decency. So men today act in ungodly ways, in immature ways. We have ungodly women, just to be fair about it. Uh, Women do not act the way God wants women to act. Women act like girls. Women act like men. Women act like Jezebels, seductresses in our society today. We have children that are ungodly. Children uh, are abandoned. There's a systemic abandonment of children today by our society, by the family system. Um, And so it's resulted in ungodly children that are unruly and lovers of evil. And just to be fair, when you talk about ungodly men, ungodly women, and ungodly children, we can look at the church and see that much of the church is spiritually immature. The church is filled with baby Christians. The church is filled with carnal Christians. The church is filled with false Christians. And so we live in an immature society on the outside, and we live in an immature uh, church on the inside. And this should not be the case for us as a church, right? When you look in the pages of Scripture, there's a call for God's people to grow into spiritual maturity. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 20, he said that we are to grow in maturity by not being experts in evil. 
in our, in our world of digital information where anything we want is at our fingertips, we can be expert, experts in everything. We can be experts at everything but the truth. We can be experts at how evil works and how evil looks. But Paul is saying, do not be experts in evil. And that's a sign of maturity, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 20. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13 and 14, he said, we are to grow in maturity, that the goal of being part of a church, to be equipped to do the work of the ministry, is that so we will grow in maturity into what? Christ-likeness. That should be our goal as a church, is to grow in maturity in Christ-likeness, to not be experts in evil. Paul said in Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, he said that shepherds, teachers, elders are to teach the flock, to warn the flock so that they may present everyone mature in Christ. Let me say that again. The goal, the, the purpose, the goal, the intention of elders is to both teach the flock and warn the flock because our charge is to present everyone mature in Christ in the congregation. And so in our passage today, we're going to look at three stages of Christian maturity from 1 John chapter 2, verse 12 through 14. We're going to look at uh, stages of being spiritual children, spiritual young men, and spiritual fathers. So in 1 John chapter 2, verse, verse 14 through 16, the Apostle John writes this, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the father. Verse 14. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. Let's pray together. Lord, as we have gathered this morning, it is our desire to mature in Christ-likeness. To have a perspective, your perspective, Lord, on where we are at in that journey. And my hope, Lord, uh, and my prayer for our time is that we would both be encouraged and convicted. We'd be encouraged that uh, there is hope for us to move forward in the faith, that you're, what you have revealed in these scriptures is what you are going to help us to do should we be willing to follow, to move from child to young man to father in spiritual maturity. And so we would be encouraged by that, but may we also be convicted this morning, Lord, that perhaps for some of us we have stayed too long in the stage of being a spiritual child. That we have not progressed to being spiritual young men. That for those of us who should be fathers, that we are not exercising that um, godly oversight and care and shepherding in the way that we should for how long we've been Christians. And so, Lord, would you use this time to, to grow us up in the faith in the way that you and John had in mind. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so in our passage, we're going to take a look at children, young men, and fathers. And you want to be asking yourselves, as I was praying, how can I be encouraged about where I'm at in, in terms of what I need to be focusing on, if this is if I'm a child, young man, or father, but also how 
Um, can I be open to the Lord's conviction in my life if I'm maybe at a certain stage where I should be somewhere else? And so in verse 12 and verse 13, the first part of verse 12 and the last part of verse 13, he talks about being spiritual children. Verse 12, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. Last part of verse 13, uh, I write to you, children, because you know the Father. Now, keep your eyes on these verses. In verse 12, when he says to you, I am writing to you, little children. And then he says in verse 13, at the end of it, uh, he just uses the phrase children. These are two different Greek words, little children and children. In verse 12, verse A, little children is from the Greek word technia. Technia. It means born ones. It refers to the general meaning of all believers. So in one sense, we are all little children because we are all those who are born again. And we know that we have uh, our sins forgiven for his name's sake. We are all technia, little children. Verse, verse, uh, first part of verse But then in verse 13, in the last part, he uses a different Greek word. And that is not the word technia for little children. It is the word uh, paideia, paideia, which is the, we translate just as children. And this had the idea, not of born ones, but of young children, you know, young toddlers in the faith. These are young, immature believers in the faith who, again, know the Father. And so when you combine Verse 12, the first part of it, and the last part of verse 13, when he says, little children and children, he is essentially saying this at this point. When we come to faith, we are children. We are born again, and we essentially focus on two areas of our faith at the beginning of your faith journey, that your sins are forgiven, and you simply want to know the Father God. That your sins are forgiven, you simply want to know the Father God. And you think about it, that's true, isn't it? When you came to faith, the first thing on your mind was not that you had a detailed understanding of predestination or a proper uh, eschatology, whether you're amillennial, premillennial, or postmillennial, or what is your view on the sign gifts. You did, that was the furthest thing from your mind when you first came to faith. When you first came to faith, what were you thinking? You were thinking, I, I want to be forgiven. And I want to know God. I want to know God now and forevermore. And I want to know that my sins are atoned for and are forgiven so that I don't face wrath, punishment, and banishment. And those were really the, the primary two thoughts of why you and I came to faith. It wasn't this complex doctrinal issue that had to first be solved. That's what it came down to. And when we are a child in the faith, um, you know, it's easy to recognize that there's evil in this world. It's hard to acknowledge that you're a sinner in need of forgiveness. It's easy to um, understand the idea of forgiveness. You need forgiveness in your life. But it's hard to come to the place where you're going to trust specifically in Jesus for that forgiveness. And so we think about, even though 
a child can grasp the idea of needing forgiveness for your sins. Even a child can grasp the desire to know a father, a heavenly father. It's hard. It's hard to get to the place to say, my specific sins need to be forgiven by Jesus. And I need to acknowledge that I am sinful before him in need of his forgiveness. When the passage talks about that you have known the Father, because you know the Father, and end of verse 13, and we are a child in the faith. For some of you, that's a difficult thing to hear. And that's a difficult thing to hear because as you think of your own physical father, your own physical father was abusive to you. Or your own physical father was not even there. He uh, left your mom. Or he died early. And so when we hear knowing the father in a spiritual way, some of you, you, you grew up in a, in a stable household. Uh, perhaps your father was a Christian. And so when you hear, I want to know the father, it brings to mind very positive things. Well, I love my father. My father loves me. And so God the Father is even greater than my father. Of course I want to know him. And, and that's wonderful. But there are many of us, when we hear knowing the father, it, it creates this dissonance in us. Where we think, why would I want to know that father when all I have before me is the example of my abusive or absent father here on earth? And so we feel caught. We feel, we feel caught in this place for some of us where on one hand, we know that in order to come to saving faith, we must come to know the father who is God, who is righteous and holy and loving and perfect. And we must come to know him if we are to experience life and to experience salvation. But on the other hand, for those of us that have that project onto God our own experiences or lack thereof of our own father, we say, but I, something is holding me back from surrendering my life to the father. And that's a difficult place to be in. If you are a child in the faith, um, your spiritual walk looks something like this. Uh, maybe you come to church. Uh, maybe you come to church on a regular basis. And, uh, and, and that's kind of your primary expression of your faith. You're not really in fellowship much with other believers. You're preoccupied with the world. And if we were to ask you about your understanding of the Christian faith as a spiritual child, you would say something like, well, I know that God exists. Um, I believe that there's a heaven, there's a hell. I believe that uh, I, I need to know Jesus Christ. But if we were to ask you anything deeper than that, it'd be very difficult for you to articulate. You know, you want to be a good person. I know what this is like because I was a child in the faith for many, many years. Okay, I came to faith when I was in junior high. I made a profession of faith in junior high. High school, college, uh, much of my spiritual journey was simply defined by just that. Um, 
I know that I have sin. I need Jesus Christ to forgive it. I want to go to heaven, not hell. I want to just try and be a good person. And that's pretty much the way I lived for about 10 years, the first 10 years of my Christian faith. I didn't serve. I didn't evangelize. I didn't tithe. Um, I, I would just kind of come to church in and out. And I was a spiritual child for about 10 years. You know, there was no dis- Christian discipleship in my home, none at all. And um, and so pretty much I, I kind of did my own Christian journey on my own from about the age of 13 years on. Uh, you know, my mom was a Christian. She was a solid Christian, but there was no real Christian discipleship in the home. And so uh, I spent an extended amount of time in a stage of spiritual adolescence in as a spiritual child. And it really wasn't until I got to my early 20s, until uh, about 23, that I really started to take my faith seriously. Now, on one hand, if that is you, if you are in an extended season of spiritual adolescence, of spiritual immaturity, uh, you should be thinking the following. You should be saying, you know, um, to be a spiritual child should really be more like a one to two year thing. Maybe. Uh, maybe, maybe I'm just kind of, you know, getting into it, but no longer than, and this is my pastoral wisdom to you, no longer than one to two years should you spend as a spiritual child. Um, especially if you come to faith as an adult. And if you are in that place for longer than that, you should be thinking two things right now. Number one, you should be saying, um, I shouldn't be here. What, what this is showing is that, um, I'm making God wait. And sometimes there's huge trauma, huge experiences in your life, uh, huge trials and testings that press you down. But aside from those exceptions, in general, if you are in a state of spiritual childhood and immaturity for anything longer than a very short period of time, you should be saying, I should not be here because I'm making God wait. And if I'm making God wait for me to grow up, then it's entirely justified by God to make you wait for other areas of your life. And we don't think about that often, do we? We don't think that if we make God wait, God will make us wait. But that is very true. When you look at 2 Samuel chapter 22, uh, when you look at I think it's Psalm 18 or Psalm 19. It's a very, it's a similar pa- parallel passage to 2 Samuel chapter 22. It says that, uh, to those who show integrity to God, God blesses. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, to those who are crooked, God appears torturous. And there's an aspect of God where he will mirror back to us the same character that we bring to God. Now, if we are evil, God will not be evil to us. We're not saying that. But he will discipline us. And so we need to take this seriously. Uh, but if you are in this stage as a child for any longer than a short period of time, you should also be encouraged. You should be encouraged that God is for you. He wants you to go from being a child to a young man. And he wants you to feel the bitterness and the regret of staying too long in a place that you shouldn't be as a motivator to not be there. 
Okay, when I look back on those years, when I was earlier on, from 13 to 23, and I now look back as an old, I go, those were wasted years for the faith. I could have used so much of that time to grow in the faith. I was so arrogant. I was so rebellious. I wasted so much time. I sowed so much, you know, bad seed that reaped destruction in my life. Uh, with the friends that I chose, with the decisions that I made, with the good, good that I failed to do. And I look back on all those years that were wasted. And so part of the reason why I bring urgency to the Christian faith as an adult is because I look back on years of my life that I wasted for the Lord and said, I don't want to go back to that world of living as a spiritual child, being tossed to and fro by every wind of cunning doctrine, being a double-minded person, being immature in the faith. And neither does God. He wants for you and me to move past that. There's a second stage, and that's the stage of being a young man. Or I guess you could say a young woman as well, reading into it. If you look into the passage again in the middle part of verse 13 and the middle part of verse 14, he talks about being young men. And he says this in the middle part of verse 13. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Middle part of verse 14, second part of verse 14. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Young men, this is where you grow up from being a child in the faith. And I'm just going to say in terms of just spiritual um, observation, pastoral observation, I would say you should become a young man in the faith or, or even a young woman in the faith. Move beyond the childhood phase. Uh, stage of faith, uh, maybe for between year two and year 20, somewhere around there. Just a guess. But he says in this passage that what distinguishes a young man in the faith from being a child in the faith is that young men in the faith are spiritually strong. Now, how are they strong? In these two verses, he says you're strong through two things. The word of God abides in you, number one. And number two, you overcome the evil one. You know that you have overcome the evil one. You are strong because you are committed to learning the word of God, to having God's, the truth of God in you and studying it and obeying it. And secondly, you see the Christian walk as a battle against the evil one, that you know that you have victory against the evil one in Christ, that there is an enemy that is out there to destroy you that seeks your destruction. And you see the Christian walk, not as a country club experience, not simply just as a, um, a place to have fun with friends and make um, a good time, but you see the Christian walk as a battle between light and darkness, good and evil, right and wrong, the truth and the lie. How many of you are in this place this morning where you say, you know, pastor, I'm not quite a babe, a child in the faith, but I'm a young man in the faith. And John gives us these two reminders of the keys to growing strong, the word of God and seeing the Christian life as a battle in overcoming the evil one. You become strong as a young man when the word of God abides in you. God's word, the scriptures, are not just um, recounting the narrative of what happened in the past. They are not just uh, 
dictates on how to live a more moral life. They are both of those. But the scripture's testimony about themselves is that the scriptures are alive. Jesus said in John chapter 17, sanctify them with the truth. Your word is truth. There is a spiritually sanctifying, a cleansing element to God's word. It sanctifies you. It's not just learning how to be a more moral more, 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 person or, or understanding the stories that make sense of reality. There's a sanctifying element when you read the word of God, when you apply the word of God, John 17. Uh, Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he said that all scripture is God-breathed. It's, it literally comes out of God. And it's good for equipping the man of God for every good work. The writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews chapter 4 that the word of God is active. It's living. It's the one thing that's truly able to discern the thoughts and intentions and motivations of the heart. Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1, he said that the promises of God are there to equip you for everything you need for spiritual life and godliness. The word of God helps you as a young man to become strong in the faith because it's living, it's equipping, it's sanctifying, it provides everything we need for life and godliness. I love the class that Chris um, Karen Dang is teaching after the services here in downtown LA and in Cerritos. He just kind of began it where he's going over the inspiration and the um, inerrancy and, and how we got the Bible and all of that. Because the people who are involved in that class, what you're really saying is, I'm a young man in the faith. I'm no longer a child. See, a, a child doesn't care about those things necessarily. A child is just simply thinking, I just want to know I'm forgiven, and I just want to know God. See, when you grow up in the faith as a young man, you start to say, okay, I want to study the Word of God. I want to know the Word of God. Um, I want to know where it came from. I want to know how to use it because you see this as a gateway to the life of God. And so you're to be commended on that to pursue, to pursue that, for example, in a class like Chris's. A second thing that makes us strong is not the word of God, is not just the word of God, but is that we as young men see our spiritual walk as overcoming the evil one, overcoming the evil one. When you're a young man in the faith, you have made a decision in the Christian faith to say, the battle that I will be involved in, the, the battle that I would give my life to, the evil that I will be part of overcoming is not primarily the evil that's being done to the environment. It is not primarily the evil that's being done in the name of social justice. It is not primarily what society sees as evil in terms of gender equality or income equality or racial equality. These are not the primary battles. The battle for the young man of God is what? That we are part of a community called the church, the light of the world, the salt of the earth. That through the gospel of Jesus Christ, he is the one who has overcome the evil one. First John 4, he that is within you, the Holy Spirit that is within you is greater than he that is in the world. Ephesians chapter 2, Satan is the one that energizes the world to uh, 
to bring about the worst in our flesh. And many follow the course of following Satan through the world. First Peter chapter 5. Satan is like a lion who walks around the world seeking someone to devour. Do you see the battle? Most people miss the battle. Most people miss the battle. Most people are sitting there. Most people at your work. Most people at your school. Most people in your family. Most people in your friends or extended relatives miss the true battle in life. That's why Paul said in Ephesians 6, our war is not against the things that we see, you know, flesh and blood, but our war against principalities, powers, and, and uh, things in the dark places. Paul was saying, there's an unseen spiritual reality that is going on in your life every single day, and that battle is primarily not with your boss, not primarily with your relative, not primarily with your friends, not primarily with your classmates. That battle is being, there's a war being waged like Job. He didn't know. He didn't know the battle was going on around him in the spiritual realm. This cosmic war, uh, that the evil one was going to be overcome. The evil one want, the evil one wants to overcome you. And you have, uh, you're not going to last long as a fruitful Christian until you see the Christian faith as a battle. Simple as that. It's as simple as that. If, if for you, the Christian faith is simply uh, a place to make friends, to find someone of a similar faith to marry, if it's some place where you can raise, you know, um, more obedient kids, if it's a place where um, you can help you be a better person, I mean, that's all helpful, that's all good. But until you get to the place where you say, no, I'm in a war, and there's real people perishing now and in eternity. And there's a real enemy out there that his only goal every single second of your life is to bring you down. Um, when I have conflict with people, one of the things I have been reminding myself recently has been, it's so easy for me to just look at the person. But I have to remind myself, no, there's something, uh, another cosmic battle going on behind the scenes that's coming for me. And I need to pray my way through this. I need to trust my way through this with God. When I was, uh, when I was in my 20s, I made a commitment from the age of 27 to the age of 32. Um, I, I didn't, I went to seminary from age 26 to 29 and I told myself, I'm not going to graduate seminary until I have read the entire Bible. There was areas of the Bible I had not read from page to page. So I made sure I'd read the entire Bible, um, even the harder parts by the time I graduated. But, uh, for five years, I made a five year Bible reading commitment in my life. And what I did for five years straight was I took one book of the Bible and I read it every day for 30 days. I did that for five years, uh, mostly New Testament books. But for example, I take the book of First John, and I read the entire book of First John every day for 30 days. And then the next month, I would take Second John, and I read that every day for 30 days. I would take First Peter, read, and I did that for five years through the New Testament. Uh, you know, if a book like Matthew, 28 chapters, I wouldn't read all of it in one day, but I'd maybe read 
you know, in one week, I'd read the first like 10 chapters or whatever it is. And I'd read 10 chapters every day for 30 days. I did that for five years. Because that was my season of going through being a young man in the faith. You want God to use you? Okay. I, I made it a rule in my life during those five years. And even beyond that, I said, if I come across a scripture reference in my reading, or if I listen to a sermon, or if someone asks me a question, or if they quote a verse, something like that, and then if I don't know where that verse is, or I don't understand that verse, what they're talking about, or I'm like, I'm not familiar with that. If that happens to me, I made it my mission in life to go home and figure out the answer to that. I would stay home regularly on Friday nights just to study scripture, to just to get the answer to these questions. I was obsessed with getting the word of God into me um, during that time in my life. I, during that time in my life, I for years, I mean, I'm talking like uh, seven, eight, nine years, I would go to church twice every Sunday. I'd go to church service in the morning, and I'd find some church service at night. I would go to church, you know, in Orange County, and sometimes I'd, I'd drive to Sun Valley, Panorama City, to go to an evening service. Or I'd drive down to Costa Mesa to go to a Sunday evening service. And I did that for years and years and years. Why? It's because I just wanted the word of God. I remember going, this is way back when. Uh, okay, so back then, if you wanted to hear the previous pastor's sermons, okay, they're, they're, this like, um, before the internet was a thing, that's terrible to say. Um, you, uh, and this is even before the CDs, they put them on, they would put them on cassette tapes. And what you had to do is, if you want to hear previous sermons, you had to go down to the physical church service, go to their library, and start checking out tapes. You have to pay like a dollar per cassette tape. And then at some churches, they just go, whatever you want. I went to this one mega church, and they said, whatever you want, it doesn't cost you tickets. So I literally bought uh, a plastic, you know, shot, uh, grocery bag, and I filled it with like 80 tapes, and I would just take it home with me. You know, I did that for years. Um, but this is what it looks like, to have the word of God abide in you. And this is the kind of thing, even better than that, you should strive for, you guys. It, overcoming the evil one. Um, I think there's a lot of things as a pastor I don't do well. You know, and that's why we have a plurality of elders here. Uh, they, uh, there's a lot of elders here who do things much better than me. And I have no problem acknowledging that. But I will tell you one of the things I do really well as a pastor. One of the things I do really well is I am very focused that I see church as a battlefield against the evil one. The two main metaphors in scripture that you should think about for the church, the first metaphor is the church as the family of God. That is the primary metaphor. Okay, you can look at that from Genesis 1, uh, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, the family of God uh, as God's people, and you can go all the way to the closing chapters of the book of Revelation, Revelation 20, 21, 22, and you have the family of God. The, that metaphor as God's people as family with God and each other. You see that at the very opening chapters of the Bible. You see that at the very closing chapters of the Bible, right? But the, a metaphor that is just as dominant 
as the family of God in between Genesis, from Genesis 3 to Revelation chapter 19, okay? In between those opening and closing chapters is not just the metaphor of the family of God, but the metaphor of war, the metaphor of battle. You see battle everywhere between God's people and the forces of darkness. And that's one of the things I do well as a pastor is that I don't see church as a place primarily beyond family, beyond family just to be a more more, more moral person. I see church as a place where we're equipping you for the battle. And I see what I'm doing here. I bring the urgency every Sunday to the pulpit saying that you are going out into the battle and you need to be equipped for that with the word of God. Finally for today, he says, children, young men, and fathers, uh, children, young men, and now fathers. And I would say just arbitrarily that if you have been a Christian for 15, 20 years, uh, you should be aspiring to this place as a father in the, in the faith. In the first part of verse 13, and the first part of verse 14, he says this. I'm writing to you, Father. He says the same thing. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who's from the beginning. Verse 13. Verse 14. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. He repeats it twice for emphasis. He says that a father knows him who is from the beginning. Who is him who is from the beginning. It's God. God is from the beginning, from the creation, opening verse, you know, verses of, of Genesis. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. First uh, John, beginning of First John. You are a father when you know him who is from the beginning. Now, follow this. When you are a child, you tend to look at the Christian faith and say, I just want to be forgiven for my sins by the Lord, and I want to know God the Father. Okay. When you're a young man, you grow in the faith through the Word of God and seeing the Christian life as a battle of overcoming and having overcome the evil one. When you're a father in the faith, when you're mature in the faith, you know him who is from the beginning. The idea here is not like a child that you just want to know God the Father in a general way, but you deeply know the heart of God. So the difference between a young man in the faith and a father in the faith is a young man tends to focus on doctrine, on knowing the word of God and, and mastering it. A father in the faith has known the word of God, and mastered the doctrines of the faith. But you have also come to the place where you're communicating not just the truth of the doctrine, but the very heart of God. Okay, so when you go to help the poor, you are doing it not just because it says to help the poor inside the church uh, in, in 1 John, in the book of James, and so forth and so on, not just because the doctrine says so. You're saying that because you have come to know the heart of God. And the sweep of 2,000 scriptures throughout the Old and New Testament says that God cares for the poor. And so you say, God's heart 
is for those who are distressed, who are poor, who are orphaned, who are widow, who are without. And that is the heart of God. And so if therefore it's the heart of God, I will do it according in a, in a way that is consistent with the doctrine of God. And you start to look at situations and you say, what would be the heart of God in this situation? And not that coincides and works with the doctrine of God. The heart of God will never contradict, contradict the doctrine of God, but it will add a nuance to the doctrine of God. I'll give you an example. Um, you know, I was in a conversation with someone over the past two weeks, and this person came up to me and they said, you know, I, I need some advice. They said, um, I have a friend who is um, going through this difficult time because there's a, a moral issue between uh, my friend's parents and uh, uh, my friend and their grandparents, okay? And there's a moral issue going on there. And my friend, this is the person who's talking to me, my friend, um, he's, he's wanting to, to call out what he sees as this immoral situation with his grandparents because um, he, he's looking at this and saying, God's going to judge, God's going to judge, and uh, he's going to, you know, this is wrong, this is wrong. God is going to judge this situation, so I need to come against what my grandparents are doing, okay? So I spoke with this person over two different weeks. And the first week when they first shared that with me, I just said to them, you know, it's, that's a really tough situation because your friend is living under the house of their grandparents. You know, your friend is in their 20s, and so they might be right, but they may not know the full situation. It's very difficult to turn to your grandparents and really call them out and have them repent, although it doesn't mean you don't say anything if you really see some. But then when he told me what the issue was, I said, you know, that that's hard because... You know, it's kind of like this. We all speed, go go faster than 65 miles an hour on the freeway. Um, but none of us is saying to each other, oh my gosh, you got to repent for going 70 miles an hour. You broke the letter of the law by going over 65 miles an hour. You went 70, you know, you sinner, right? None of us is saying that to each other because we know that that's, that really doesn't matter. If you're going 110, that's different, right? But, but but it's kind of like one of those issues. That was my opinion. I told him that. I go, you know, yes, breaking the letter of the law, but based upon what you're saying, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure how far we take that. And so that was the first piece of advice I gave to him. And then when I talked to him the week after, I had this thought in mind, and it was really coming from this passage. I came back to this person. I said, you know, I want to follow up on our conversation we had last week. Everything I said to you, I still stand by, but I want to add one more thing. Because your friend has to understand that he may be looking at how he's looking at the situation may also be be a representation that he's simply looking at the letter of the law and he's not looking at the heart of God. Because the heart of God in this, he might be motivated to say something simply because he's thinking God will punish for every small act of disobedience. And if you know the heart of God, that you're adopted by God, that God is your father, that God loves you, that God is patient with you. I mean, there are certain egregious things, long patterns of sin and egregious you know, violations of law God might just come down on, right? But there are other things that, you know, if, if God came down on you and I all the time, we'd be in trouble every moment. But see, when you know the heart of God as a father, you can start to communicate, yes, it, there's some wrong there. And yes, he's to be commended for his commitment to what's right. But 
He also needs to be aware that the heart of God is God is a father and God is patient. God is loving. And God um, sees you as a child, not just waiting to punish every act of disobedience. And so um, I think that's the kind of counsel we need to strive for, that our father protects us, he provides for us, he guides us. And um, when you can come to a place in the Christian faith where you are communicating beyond the basics of the faith, where you have a solid grounding in the doctrines of the faith, but now you can start to get to know at a deeper level the heart of God that doesn't contradict the doctrines, but that nuances it in a faithful way, I think that you have you are becoming a father in the faith. And so to close, um, you know what? The reality is you, you actually don't want a church that's just filled with fathers in the faith. Because if you have a church that's just filled with fathers in the faith, you, there's no outreach. And you also don't want a church that's just filled with young men in the faith. Because then you can get a church that's just so committed to just learning doctrine that you don't learn from those who are older, you know, the wisdom from those who are older, and how that doctrine gets applied. And you also don't have outreach for those who are younger. And you also don't want a church just of children. You know, a lot of the seeker-sensitive, seeker-targeted movement in the church that came across that was really in vogue for about 20 years, but now we see what a mistake that was, um, created a weakness in the church because it filled the church with all kinds of spiritual children and no fathers. And so you, But you actually want all three in a healthy church. You want spiritual children because it's showing that the church is doing outreach and reaching new people for Christ. And you know, if you're a parent, you know when you have children in your household, children add such life, such joy. And isn't it a beautiful thing when you have new believers in a church? They remind you of what it looks like to have that joy of newness in the Christian faith and that openness to learn. And you know what? We need children in the faith in this church. We, we need young men. We need young men to be committed to the truth and having the word of God abide and who bring an urgency to the church and bring an urgency to the Christian faith to say, guys, we need to be here. We need to serve at the Artesia Street Fair. We need to do all these things because we are involved in a war. And we need to have fathers in the faith who are willing to instill wisdom and for those who will receive it. And I think if we are, we're going to be in a very, very, very good place, City Bible Church. Let's pray together. Fathers, we close together. Uh, we are children. We are young men. We are fathers. And um, you know, through the truth of the Holy Spirit that lives in us and the conviction of the Spirit in us, where we need to be right now in our faith. May we strive to move forward and to mature and not to be immature. And may we go forward, Lord, with the uh, commitment to knowing you, to knowing about you, and sharing about you uh, wherever we are in our faith, Lord. And may that lead to a spiritually mature city Bible church. I know that would honor you and it would bless us, Lord. So may that be so. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, God bless you guys. Let's go ahead and uh, stand for worship.